Hello, this is The Business, the number one business podcast in the iTuneverse. Coming up this week, postmen, boardrooms and management speak. The government set for an explosive encounter with its backbenchers and the unions over its plans to sell a stake of the Royal Mail to TNT. We discuss the dangers of privatising one of our best-loved public institutions. Plus, the shareholders are revolting. As many of Britain's biggest companies prepare for their AGMs, we look at corporate governance and boardroom shenanigans. And, with Peter Jones calling for the word failure to be replaced by feedback, we talk jargon, office speak and corporate lingo. Prepare to be fiscally stimulated or your money back. I'm Edith Chakraborty and this is The Business from The Guardian. Time now to meet the panel. And here are a bunch of journalists who can all claim to have filed less ludicrous expense claims than your average front bench MP. Deborah Hargreaves is The Guardian's business editor. Anything to declare, Deborah? I don't bother to file expenses anymore. The Guardian stopped paying expenses, so we're cleaner than clean. Larry Elliott, you're our economics editor. Are you flipping or are you flipping mad? Oh, I think I'm flipping mad. Like Deborah, I have nothing to declare apart from, as Oscar Wilde once said, my genius. <laughs> Julia Which Finch. Which is immense. <laughs> we all know. Julia this, Finch. this is a very big studio. It had to be to get my ego through the door. Um, Julia Finch, you're our retail woman, and I'll be looking at your receipts later, Julia. <laughs> I do my bit. Now, let's put dodgy expenses to one side and indulge in a bit of nostalgia. Maybe you can never be sure there'll be luck. Rings, letters through your door. <laughs> postman Pat, Postman Pat. Now that's an obvious way into our first item, but the state of the Royal Mail is far, far removed from that idyllic image of Postman Pat and his little red fan. Next month, MPs will be asked to vote on plans to partially privatise the post office. The Dutch firm TNT are in pole position to take up the 49% stake in the letters business. But their plans to make the operation more efficient aren't going down well with either Labour backbenchers or the unions. So, is it right that the public and private sphere should ever get involved in these messy relationships? Larry, what do you make of the government's plans? Total disaster. I mean, what happens here is that the government goes away and gets some tame person to come up with the answer to a problem which he wants the answer, he knows already he knows the answer to. It's a bit like going, ringing up the Rolling Stones and saying to Keith Richards, you've got a couple of months to, to do a study on whether we should liberalise the drinking laws. I mean, you know what they're going to say. So they come up with a... They, they, they send somebody away to come up with a solution. And he, this is Richard Hooper. Exactly. <laughs> and he comes up with some fairly sort of dubious comparisons. So he'll say something like, well, compared to Germany or... Um, Holland, Britain's um, real mail doesn't really cut the mustard. But of course, you know, if you go to Germany, then you pay a lot more for your for your post than you do in Britain. Uh, and uh, you know, as anybody's been to Holland knows, it's just quite a small, flat country, quite easy to deliver the mail. It's, you it's, don't get Saturday deliveries either. You no, only get weekday deliveries. No. So you know, what, what, so the government solution is to take the um, biggest burden on the on the raw mail, the pension, and uh, put it into the public domain. So you're, you you nationalise all the real problems. And then you privatise a bit of it that's going to make money for the private sector. And, you know, in three years' time, we'll be sitting here saying, wow, well, why did we allow them to do this? Because all the managers have now doubled their salary, the prices have gone through the roof, and the service has not changed or, in fact, has gone backwards. So, I mean, I, I think that this is a total disaster, both... I don't think it makes business sense. 
Um, I certainly don't think this is the right time to part privatise it because you're going to get the absolute rock-bottom price at the current values. Um, and it just seems to me to be the wrong way. I mean, if, if everything we know about what's gone wrong with the economy the last five years, we should not be thinking about part privatising the Royal Mail. We should be thinking about, as, as, as the Compass report says, we should be thinking about turning it into something like Network Rail, which seems to be a model that's worked pretty well. The government could then legitimately take the the pension liabilities off the off the balance sheet and actually put some investment into this company. So I don't see any need for it to be part privatised, and it will just be a be a halfway house to full privatisation in four or five years' time. But Julie, I mean, anyone who criticises the Royal Mail or, the po- or especially the Post Office, it's a bit like calling for the culling of giant pandas. But there is a bit of a problem with the Royal Mail, isn't it? I mean, it's a, bit, it's a loss-making business. I don't think it is, actually. I think everyone criticises the Royal Mail. Everyone thinks that the service was substantially better <coughs> ten years ago than it is now. You know, there were two deliveries a day. You used to be able to get your mail before you came to work. Now you're lucky if you get it before your tea time. I don't think anyone thinks that the service has improved. I don't understand how we've got to this position. From what I can see, we're saying that we've got to part privatise because... They haven't got the management talent. They need to bring in some more management talent. But I thought that's what Alan Leighton and Adam Crozier were supposed to do five years ago. And it seems to me like we've gone absolutely nowhere in those five years, apart from a bit further backwards. Deborah, I mean... Well, the problem is, obviously, tackling the workforce. I mean, it's a heavily unionised operation. They employ 160,000 workers, and there are very restrictive working practices. They have tried to modernise, introduce automatic sorting machines and this sort of thing. It's been very difficult to get it through the unions. I don't think any private sector operator is going to have much more success. And this is why, this is the real crux of the matter, is actually tackling the unions. The government is shying away from doing that because it's obviously politically difficult. I have a very good anecdote about how the post office, why it's in such a desperate straits. Well, obviously, a lot of teenagers work there during the summer, many of whom are of my acquaintance. And um, if you're... 150,000. Of course, they're they're all living in my house, actually. (laughs) Um, You you go, you know, they start working there. They're very slow. They've got to sort the mail by hand. They, They go out on their rounds. They take two hours longer than the than the normal postman. The po- they come back to the depot. The postman says to them, "Well, why are you taking so long? Um, oh, I just can't do it very well." Well, do you know you can claim overtime for that? So now they're claiming two hours overtime for sheer incompetence, and that's being paid out of our money. But there, yeah, there is far more to this than just an industrial relations problem. What what is the future Royal Mail in the age of email, Julia? Well, undoubtedly there is a future because we, you know, we say email that's taken over from letter post, but at the same time, well, we send parcels every. There so is often. more stuff going through the postal system in terms of ordered off the internet. You know, yeah, it's, it's fewer letters and more parcels, isn't it? That's the future. And then more free. Yeah. I mean, we don't we actually we don't actually write. We don't actually sit down and think. Oh, I know. I'll write a letter to Julia today and uh, get out my fountain pen. <laughs> no, you but actually, you go onto Amazon and, and buy a book. And or you buy a we send cards though. We send more cards than ever. So we send cards at Christmas and birthdays. Well, and yeah, and Mother's Day and Father's Day and but this, you know, is, not, congratulations this is not the Royal Mail that we're used to. Where you used to send, you used to use it as your primary com- method of uh, written communication. That age is gone. Yes, but. In 
in its place has come the bit in the huge parcel deliveries, whether it's Amazon's or Marks and Spencer's frocks or whatever. You've constantly got stuff coming through the letterbox, and there's all the direct mail as well. Although actually, since the credit crunch, there's a lot less of that. Than <laughs> well, well actually, what Royal Mail says is that they don't really care about our post. What they care about is their ten biggest business customers. Those are all the direct mail people. Yeah. That's where they make their money, yeah. and so they're far more likely to want to suit Barclays mm. and those terribles filled in checks and loans you get through the post than, than any any of us. The Royal Mail does need to go through some kind of change because the, the industry it's working to, the, the landscape it's, it's in, is far, far different from what it was 20 years ago. So there does need to be some kind of modernisation. Well, actually, they've also got competition as well, which is another difficult um, area because, obviously, the EU has opened up postal competition. We've moved ahead of every other country and done it more quickly than others. And Royal Mail is saddled with this universal service obligation, which means they have to deliver letters to every address in the country, whereas private operators can come in and just cherry pick the most lucrative parts of the business. It's like all of these um, legacy public operators like gas and electricity and, you know, they, they get left with a, this universal service obligation, which, which means they can never really be profitable until that is somehow offloaded or dealt with differently. And I mean, maybe you have to say there are two parts of the Royal Mail one of which can operate in a more competitive market and one of which has to be protected by the public purse. It's possible we have to look at it in the same way that people are now starting to look at the banking sector and say that there are two distinct banking models. There's the investment banking model, which can be much less regulated and much light light touch. And then you have the sort of core service, which should be um, a more highly regulated, just a, a normal public utility. That's the sort of model we're going down for the, well, some people are. I mean, I'd, I'd favour that model myself. And maybe we should think about the same sort of thing for the Royal Mail. And let's just think about post offices, because the post office network, that that network of branches is bigger than the supermarkets put together, isn't it? I, I mean, Julie, what would you do with the post office network? I think there's about, four, well, there was, until the latest round of cuts, about 14,000 post offices, um, which is seven times as big as Tesco in terms of the number of outlets. Um, but you know, they are, they're a community service. You, I don't, you can escape that. They're not, you can't run them as though they're a commercial model because they're also a community service. You know, everyone's got their own experience, haven't, you, haven't they? I, I live in a, an area where they've just closed the, the very local post office, which was used by all the little local businesses and all the pensioners, and they just put up a sign and say, you know, you can now go into Wimbledon. Well, no, you can't, actually, if you're a pensioner or if you've got a push chair or, you know, I, there's nowhere to park. Wait, the other at the alternative post office. If you do park, you're going to have to pay ATP for half an hour to park. I mean, it puts people's costs up. It takes. It would take an hour for a trip instead of five minutes. It's just they are part of the community service. There's no escaping that. I can't understand why the government doesn't use this disaffection with the banks. I mean, this idea of turning it into a sort of people's bank, you know, turning the post office into a trusted network of banks and public services. I mean, why? You know, that idea was out there. And that's they like back to the future, isn't it? it? Because they did yeah. that with Gyro Bank so many years ago, and then they decided to sell it to the Alliance and Leicester. And we all know what's happened there. OK, well, you can read more about this in the run up to next month's vote at guardian.co.uk slash post. And to have your say, post your comment on our blog at guardian.co.uk slash the business. It's not just Marks and Sparks who've had problems from the shareholders at their annual general meetings. But while M&S came out of their storm in a D cup with some credit, companies such as Shell, ITV and Lloyds all hold their AGMs in the next fortnight or so, and all are likely to face some former shareholder rebellion over excessive boardroom pay. 
There's no doubt that while times were good, a company's AGM was pretty much formality. But now that times are tough and savers have seen their investments nosedive, you can bet that the shareholders are revolting. Deborah, what, what are you looking at over the next couple of weeks? A whole bunch of big blue chip names coming up and reporting to their shareholders. Well, it's quite interesting, isn't it? I mean, shareholders have finally found their voice. They finally found some sense of anger. Up till this year, we'd only had about two, is it, Julia, two or three pay disputes in the whole yeah, sort of... You could count them on the fingers of one yeah. hand. Over the last six, seven years... There's been, t- I think, there've been five big pay disputes, and and now we're having one a week. You know, now every big company that comes up with its performance targets and its bonuses for executives is having to face a difficult ride from its shareholders, and it's partly to do with the recession. When you can't meet your performance targets, well, why not change them so that the execs get rewarded anyway? Well, that's what companies seem to be doing, and um, shareholders, rightly so, are angry, angry about it, and about time too. What 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 do you think, Julie? You're also, an expert on this. It's also because in, uh, institutional investors, especially, are under pressure as they've never been before. Um, they've been accused of letting the banks and bank pay get out of control and sort of contributing or even causing the, the credit crunch. Since that, they've been berated by the regulators and by ministers like Lord Miners saying, well, they weren't doing their job. They weren't pe- policing the com- companies effectively. And where were they in that glorious boom period? Were they just sort of not turning up Cashing their, their dividend checks. <laughs> Well, it didn't really matter if it was a bull market, did it? If you're a shareholder, you didn't really care too much if the shares were going up and didn't really turn a blind eye to what the chief executive OK, said. well, Professor Elliot, let me bring you to this uh, thing that economists and business school academics always talk about, which is a principal agent problem. They always used to talk about with corporate governance. So companies were always run by management and it was thought that they were run for management's own interests rather than for the owners, the ultimate owners of those companies, which were the shareholders. Yeah. And, and so uh, for the past 20, 30 years, academics used to think, well, how do we get companies to be run for the benefit of their shareholders, for their actual owners? And yet when you give shareholders, this is a great age of shareholder democracy, when you give shareholders some kind of say over how companies should be run, they don't really want it, do they? Well, they didn't, I don't think. And that's because we had a, you know probably the biggest bull market, secular bull market has ever been, started in 1982 and ended in 2007. So uh, yeah, we did expect shareholders to kick up much more of a fuss, but they didn't. But I think they, they just, as uh, Deborah said, they just cashed the checks and thought, well, you know, if, if we can get somebody in who's going to push the share price up by 100% or 200% in five years or even, even by 50% in three months, you know, we will just cash a difference and turn a blind eye to what they're doing. I think that in a downturn, people start to get a lot more interested in just how much the people running the companies are really truly worth and how much how much value they're really adding and how much these performance payments are really due, due to actually paying people large bonuses for what effectively is doing their job. I mean, essentially what these chief executives did was write themselves contracts, which gave them an awful lot of money for doing what the man in the street would be considered to be a, a fair day's a fair day's wage for a fair day's work, and so they were just, you know, taking the mickey. I think. Fine. And, fine. and I think shareholders have now, because because their returns have actually been going, because we're now in a you know whether we're in a sort of a, a bear market rally or the start of a new bull market, no one really knows. But actually, you know, a halving of the share of, of the share price over the last you know eighteen months does tend to concentrate the mind a bit but, more. But that still leaves you this question over whether this kind of new age of shareholder aggression is temporary or whether we're going it's to totally new temporary. It's totally so temporary. as soon as we come back into the good times, of course it is. Well, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't I mean, be, it but, shouldn't it, but, it, but, it, but it will be. We know what, mm. we, we know what happens. I mean, quite a lot of the people, 
you know, it's an awful lot of I scratch my back, you scratch my, you, you know, don't kick up a fuss about my, about, you know, we, we know the way in which, which, which corporate governance really works, non-executive directors of one company, the executive directors of another company. So, you know, you don't really want to go along to company X and say, actually, I don't think you're worth your £15 million bonus because the same bloke next week is sitting on your Remcom is going to come along and say, well, if you've, if you've screwed me, I'm going to screw you. I mean, that's the way the system works. It's completely corrupt. Yeah, there's, well, also, there's also, you know, huge industry become attached to pay and executive pay. pay there consultants. are probably thousands of people in London who work for pay consultants. You go look at any annual report, uh, any FTSE 100 company, and you'll probably find they've got three or four firms of pay consultants that they're, they're retaining to advise the board on ever more complicated bonus schemes. You know, it's in their interest. No, no company is ever going to retain one of those consultants if they come back and say, well, actually, you're paid really, well, really rather well and you don't you're deserve any more. You need <laughs> I mean, a pay cut. You, you do hear all these stories, don't you, occasionally, where we have to pay somebody you know, £15 million pounds or £20 million pounds a year. Otherwise, oh, that's we, complete bollocks. Total bollocks, How, though, how often it? do you actually hear about some British CEO buggering off to America? You never hear about it. I mean, you know, there will be this mass exodus of talent to country X or country Talent, country. inverted yeah, commas. But, but Deborah, Deborah, isn't part of the problem that these boardrooms are old boys clubs and old and boys are the figurative words there. Yeah, the most important old words. white boys. Yeah. yeah. Pale male and middle-aged. So how, how do you change that? I mean, this is, this is, this is an endemic problem <laughs> well, in British Well, yeah, it has been a problem for a long time. And how long have we been talking about corporate governance reforms to get more women on the boards, more diversity on the boards, to shake up the pay? I mean, it really is boring the number of times we've spoken about it and argued about it. And yet it never happens because these boards are perpetuating themselves in their own image. They're recruiting from within their own ranks they all fish in and the same pool so they, it's the same yeah the, the same, same people. people over yeah. and over again all nodding all, through the same pay deals absolutely and and we had the higgs corporate you governance had the miners co- review yeah higgs was that review. six yeah. years yeah. ago wasn't it yeah. and nothing's really changed and since of course then. the great granddad even more the cadbury review of course, and yet, of and, course but, and but yet. Then, i mean we've gone through this big recession and what worries me is that as larry says you might be this might be just a temporary lull in which people in which shareholders go well hang on i'm not happy about paying you that much during a recession but as soon as good times come back well yeah fine we'll wave through your pay deals yeah i mean the whole system really needs to be reviewed and i think the key to it is to get it, getting some new talents and new people in there you know different types of people and that is never going to happen in a recession because everyone thinks oh safety first we've got to have a safe pair of hands got a couple of trade unions on the board yeah absolutely workers representatives statutory member of the national (laughs) consumers council or you know just a few people from outside who have got a different take on it people with a normal view of things people who might say actually you know a million pounds a year is a hell of a lot of money for a salary you You don't need two million pounds bonus as well you do that across yeah what's wrong with the german system they have a workers representative on the board and you i mean you do get big pay deals in Germany, but you don't get quite the excess that you get in the Anglo-Saxon world. OK, we'll leave that there. You can read more about all of these AGMs and their companies at guardian.co.uk slash business. Last week, Peter Jones, he's a good-looking one apparently from Dragon's Den, said he wanted to see the word failure taken out of the dictionary and replaced with feedback, the old softy. It got us thinking about some of our favourite management speak because we've all encountered phrases such as right-sizing, blue-sky thinking, and running things up the flagpole. Well, panel, let's helicopter this around the room and see where it lands. First of all, let's get your favourite managerial terms. Larry. Um, that's a really, really tough one, but um, and there used to be a guy in the 
program in the 1990s called Drop the Dead Donkey, and the, and the, 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 the famous sort of management guy in that was a guy called Gus Hedges, who used to come out every morning and, and you know, talk to his staff as scoop busters and come up with all this, and that's where it restarted, but now it seems to be totally endemic. I mean, it's sort of... Um, I think my favourite one is uh, when people talk about downsizing, when really what they mean is sacking. I mean, there is there is downsizing, rationalisation, streamlining, all the synonyms that you've laid off. There seems to be an endless, an endless number of of words for you know to avoid saying actually you're fired um, which is what quite a lot of this I mean globalization is normally a, a word for, a word you've for had you're, it. you're fired you know yeah, we're the, taking your job to china the global forces you know the company is facing unprecedented global forces to a worker really means goodbye deborah Yes. Um, well, I think management speak involves using far more words when just one or two. And would your favourite example is leverage. Any word being used, any noun being turned into a verb, action to lunch to impact. And you've brought in a. I've a brought list in of, a few. I've brought in a few on, examples. Actually, I'm indebted to my former colleague Lucy Kellaway at the FT, who writes about this sort of thing all the time. And these are her some of her um, real favourites. We remain focused on leveraging the strong positions and relationships we enjoy in key markets. BAE Systems. What the hell does that mean? We will continue to outperform, thus delivering premium value to shareholders. Outperform premium value. What, what do they actually mean? And Dudley, Wolverhampton and Dudley Breweries, we are encouraged by the robustness of our trading platform. I think that means selling more beer. <laughs> um, and one last one, um, this is from the US, um, where I'm um, talking about those men and women, 98,000 unsung heroes in our workforce. They have unleashed their passion for serving customers. <laughs> and Julia, let me leverage a bit of business jargon of you. What's your favourite item? Oh, there's so many, aren't there? I think uh, bandwidth. When people say I don't have enough bandwidth for that, <laughs> what does that mean? Bandwidth. bandwidth. What does that mean? I think it brain means brain size. Oh, so all these people. You haven't should, got enough time. All these I people think. should be given a copy of the works of George Orwell. There's a very famous essay with George Orwell. Politics talk, in English yeah, language. Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. And any, any person who's running a FTSE company or any company should be given a copy of that essay because it's absolutely okay, brilliant. Okay, fine. Well, what's the big point he makes there about why people use these jobs? Well, it actually says that there's that there's something wrong in in the jargon because it actually declarifies the meaning it actually makes things more declarifies, ob- declarifies. <laughs> it actually makes Larry's things, got uh, his own actually, jargon actually makes things much more obscure and that people normally are not clear in what they're saying because they don't really know what they're doing and what they're saying and I think or they're trying to hide the real or meaning they're, or they're, they're trying to yeah. euphemistically make something sound yeah. better or yeah. they're just trying to look more intelligent than they are it's, uh, I mean, it's like this, this obsession with the word key. So you have key deliverables and key functionalities. And, and delivering key anything learnings. other than a letter to, to, is to, a bit... To be honest, to be honest you, we're, we're, not, we're not entirely immune from it here at the Garden no, Army. We, 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 have, we have little spaces where we can go in our new open plan. And what they call, Larry? They're called think pods. But actually, called rooms. Mo- actually, yeah. most people think of them as an office, but we call them a think pod. And we no, longer have, we no longer have meetings. We have checkpoints through the day where people sit Because around. they're shorter. <laughs> Uh, Although well, if you've been to that's, one, you'd that's, that's, that's maybe news to me, not baby. Agree. I haven't noticed. Yeah. Seems to me to be an endless series of checkpoints. There's more checkpoints here than there are in East Berlin in the Cold War. <laughs> but Julie, you mentioned some terms there: deliverables. Out of the final version. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we'll, we'll send that delivery to Alan Rusbridge, and you can be called into his room for a private chat. And... His think pod. <laughs> <laughs> To reevaluate my thinking. <laughs> to downsize you. Assign your own think pod for the next year or so. Um, Julie, you mentioned delivery, key deliverables. I hear those sorts of terms from people in government quite a lot. I know someone in Number 10 who was infusing quite recently about how 2009 was going to be the year of delivery. So it's not just business people who use this. 
No, it's just infected the whole, everyone's conversation, hasn't it? I mean, it's not just in offices that you hear people talking about blue sky thinking and let's hook up on this later or let's... Let's take this offline. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's think outside the box. Let's drill down, <laughs> drill down. Why, why don't they just say, you know, let's have a look at the details. Is, is that so much better than this current sort of business trend that we've seen from the likes of Mark Spencer's and Evening Standard to say okay we're your mates and we're going to apologise we're going to use words like sorry now because we're on your side is that don't you find that equally threatening I find that totally nauseating because someone's just told them to say that they've, they've run that past some form of they've consultant they've run it up a flagpole they've run it up a flagpole and, <laughs> and the focus it. group has decided it's the thing to and, do and, uh, it's, sorry, sorry is the new not sorry isn't it I mean so, sorry is the new you know go, go screw yourself really I mean, it's just, just this, this month's version of it really <laughs> Um, so I'm, you know, I, anybody who's taken in by that needs their heads examined. <laughs> well, let's draw this checkpoint to a close. Um, remember that if you want to have your say on any of our topics, post your comments on our blog at guardian.co.uk/slash/the-business, where you'll find a link to the fantastic business bullshit generator that's bright up your day. Thank you to all my panelists: Deborah Hargreaves, Larry Elliott, and Julia Finch. Our producers: Ben Green. I'm Edith Shackleford, and that was the business. <laughs> <laughs>